It's the Veterans Radio Hour. Proudly supported by McDonald's and their national salute to the U.S. military. Now, stay tuned for the Veterans Radio Hour next on the TRN Talk Radio Network. Tango Charlie Bravo, you're a go for the Veterans Hour. Hi, uh, she'll have a Happy Meal and I'll have the Big Mac. Dad, when will I be old enough for a Big Mac? When you're in college. College. Now, when you register specially marked McDonald's gift certificates at youpromise.com, a portion of the value goes into a YouPromise account for a child's education. So, the more specially marked gift certificates you buy, the more you'll save for college. I want to be a doctor. Hello, gift certificates. Sign up for free and get the details at youpromise.com. We love to see you smile. Welcome, one and all, to the Veterans Radio Hour. It's our tribute to all of those who served our great nation's armed forces, past and present, and their tremendous accounts of heroic duty and bravery. With your host, Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, coming to you live from our Veterans Center studio, here is General Dave. December 1st, 2002, here in the Veterans Radio Hour, it's our 13th show. After December 7th, 1941, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it took four months before the United States of America responded to that attack with a Doolittle raid of April 1942 on Japan. It took eight months to begin a land campaign with the invasion of Guadalcanal in August of 1942. Three and a half years of fighting until victory in August 1945. After September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers of New York City, our nation responded in less than one month against the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda and the Taliban of Afghanistan, which harbored them. This war continues today. During the War of 1812, a battle took place 20 miles northwest of Put-in Bay at the western end of Lake Erie. Commodore Perry's fleet of nine vessels took on the British fleet under the command of Commodore Barclay. Every ship in the enemy squadron was captured. Perry wrote General Harrison, we have met the enemy and they are ours. These are all instances of homeland defense World War II with the Japanese on Pearl Harbor, September 11th in New York and also in the Pentagon, and then the War of 1812. And tonight we're going to talk about homeland security, and we have some great guests with us tonight. We have Lieutenant Colonel Kathy Pennington, the commander of U.S. Army Recruiting Battalion in Chicago, Dr. Larry Wurzel of the Heritage Foundation, and Major General David Harris, the Adjutant General of the State of Illinois. But now to the senior producer, Kenny DeCamp. Thank you, General Dave. This is VeteransRadioHour.com. If you want to go directly to the computer or if you're listening on one of our radio stations across the country, you can call in and ask a question at 866-928-2329. And now, today's dedication of our show. 
Tonight's uh, dedication is to an Air Force Reserve unit, the 711th Special Operations Squadron, their crew of an MC-130E Combat Talon 1. The situation was the evening of 7 December, I say again, 7 December of 2001. These 10 brave U.S. Air Force reservists flew over enemy territory in Afghanistan after they received a call after just finishing a five-hour routine mission. The call came from Special Operating Forces MH-53 Pavlo helicopters who could not refuel off a tanker due to broken refueling hoses and, were, and the helicopters were running out of fuel. The reserve MC-130 refueled the four Pavlo helicopters. First, the two most fuel-starved helos at 500 foot above the ground at night and then led them out of enemy territory. The Talon returned after the last two helos, refueled them, making it a 17-hour crew day. They led those last two helos to safety. After giving all the fuel to the helicopters, the MC-130 Talon found out that most of their fuel was gone and they could not get back to home base. They diverted to Pakistan and made a recovery airfield. The crew received the Major General Thomas Marchbanks Memorial Award, which is given to a reserve unit's most distinguished flight crew. Here's today's military quote of the day, brought to you with support from retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bogievich. Tonight's crew comes from Jennifer Martinez. She says, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. You're listening to the Veterans Hour with retired Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, back to the broadcast. Okay, in our Homeland Defense uh, discussions tonight, we have uh, three great guests, and I'm very happy to have all of them with us. Uh, here in the studio with us is Lieutenant Colonel Kathleen Pennington, Commander, U.S. Army Recruiting Battalion in Chicago. She was commissioned in 1982 from ROTC, ROTC uh, from Northern Illinois University. She's the Adjutant General Corps soldier. She commanded at company level. She served at battalion staff. She's a battalion XO. She has two children, Megan and Joshua. We also have on the phone with us tonight from Washington, D.C., Dr. Larry Wurzel. He is the director of Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, but also recently promoted to vice president director for the Catherine and Shelby Colbin Davis Institute for International Studies. He served the United States Army since 1970 until retirement. He served as Army attache, as a strategist, as a counterintelligence and security policy staff officer in the office of the Secretary of Defense. He was the director of strategic studies in the Institute of Army War College. He's the author of several books to include, and I'll mention just one of them, China's Military Mobilization, International Implications. And also on the phone with us tonight, from the state of Colorado, I believe at a National Guard conference, is Major General Dave Harris, the Adjutant General of the State of Illinois, a former member of the Illinois Senate. 
I'll go to General Harris first. Uh, sir, are you with us? I'm with you. Good evening. How are you doing tonight, Dave? Fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What? What uh, is this, in fact, a National Guard conference that you're attending in Colorado? Uh, it is specifically just the Air National Guard, however. Right, since you command both uh, uh, air and ground. Right. Right, and so uh, and it's uh, the, the the conference has to do with the Air National Guard, and it's a, a, a CONUS all through the United States. Uh, all through the United States, as well as operations throughout the world. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, Larry uh, Wurzel, you with us, sir? I'm with you. How you doing, General Green? I'm doing fine. Thanks for for uh, joining us. I'll tell you, Larry. I've worked with Larry with the Heritage Foundation on on several projects. And uh, you, Homeland Defense is one of his uh, fortes. Uh, was privileged to work on a panel with him, uh, a study actually by the Heritage Foundation on Homeland Security. We'll get into that in just just a moment. And then uh, uh, Kathy, uh, uh, Colonel Pennington's with us tonight. How you doing, Kathy? Fine, sir. How are you? Fine. Uh, could you tell us real quick uh, what your responsibilities are as a commander of the recruiting battalion, Chicago? Yes, sir. Uh, as the commander, I. Uh, I'm charged with all the active and reserve um, enlistments in the northern Illinois area. We also have special missions, OCS, WAFT, ROTC, linguist and band missions. We uh, enlist non-prior service generally, as well as prior service soldiers in both the reserves and active forces. Uh, you know, right now, um, there is a lot of uh, uh, debate going on about uh, service and and recruiting. What what is your? Can you give us a just a feel on uh, the propensity to serve, meeting your recruiting objective, getting people to join uh, Uncle Sam? Well, looking at uh, FY02, which ended in September, now we're going into FY03. The Army's done very well in Northern Illinois in the last couple years, as is United States Army Recruiting Command. Um, the propensity to enlist in the Chicagoland area is relatively low. However, um, of those that are enlisting, a good chunk of them are coming into the Army, and the Army has done very, very well in the last couple years enlisting non-prior service into the, the ranks, both RA as well as USAR. So, yeah, just again, uh, Kathy uh, is in charge of uh, assessing those into the, into the Army, both active duty and the reserve component. That's correct. And I'll ask the same question to General Harris. Uh, Dave, uh, how about on the National Guard? Uh, are meeting quotas uh, to fill the ranks or not? We are. The uh, recruitment is still strong, both on Army and Air side. Yeah. And uh, so how about, in the, how about in the future with the continuous mobilization? You know, Illinois, everybody that's from the state would be very proud. The state of Illinois at, at one time, I think California leads right now, but had the most uh, uh, people mobilized, I believe, uh, during Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, isn't that right, Dave? That's correct. We had the single largest uh, mobilization. We had about 1,400 soldiers from a single uh, unit, an infantry brigade. Yeah, 131st? Uh, the 66th Brigade, the 66th Infantry Brigade, yeah. Okay. And uh, and so what about if this continues? What about war in Iraq? What if uh, war on terrorism in uh, more places uh, around the world? Uh, and what about with the Homeland Security uh, requirements if more uh, work is put on the National Guard for that? The ability, I guess the question would be the ability then to meet uh, the requirements to, to fill the ranks. I think there are long-term consequences which we need to track very closely. 
when you call up a, a National Guard or, or a reserve unit uh, and you assign them a mission, which is not necessarily what they're trained for, as an example, uh, force protection and installation security. Uh, at uh, at uh, U.S. Army uh, War College last year, there was an MP reserve unit providing the security there. Well, you know, that's not exactly what they were, uh, what they were trained for. Right now, a National Guard armor company is providing security at the U.S. Army War College. I guarantee you those folks aren't going to be firing uh, Table 8 anytime soon. So those sorts of mobilizations uh, could have real impacts. Just for those that may not know what Table 8 means, oh, and I'll sorry. say this as a special ops guy, but having fired a tank is my last weapon in the Army uh, in service. A Table 8 is a crew, crew qualification for a Bradley fighting vehicle or, a, or an M1 Abrams tank. Uh, range firing so it's a it's a qualification on a range i want to go to read something about the war of 1812 uh you know they that's called also the president madison's war uh it was um, he said that we had to have a need to fight with britain for for uh for our rights uh britain was preying on american uh, commerce seizing her sailors and supporting restless indian indians on the frontier at the same time america had an interest in conquering florida and annexing Canada. As the country prepared for yet another war of Britain, the United States suffered from internal divisions. The congressional vote to enter the War of 1812 showed that many Americans were unclear about whether to fight and exactly what the war was all about. I think that sounds a little bit familiar with today. While the South and West favored war, New York and New England opposed it because it interfered with commerce. Think about the stock market. The declaration of war had, had been made with military preparations still far from complete. There were fewer than 7,000 regular soldiers distributed in widely scattered posts along the coast near the Canadian border and in a remote interior. These soldiers were to be supported by the undisciplined militia of the states. Dave Harris, we don't have undisciplined militia today. Not, not yeah. after 1906, that's <laughs> correct. But uh, just uh, 7,000, uh, of course, you got to take it in proportion of what was going on then, uh, you know, almost 200 years ago and compared to today. But the same thing as all the debates going on in, in, in Congress, uh, a possible war in Iraq. Uh, let's talk about preparedness. That's what I was leading into, preparedness uh, to take the fight to the enemy today. What is the preparedness, uh, bottom line, of the uh, Illinois uh, National Guard, Air and Army, right now, Dave? Uh, my comment is simple. Uh, every soldier, every airman, every, every Marine, and every naval uh, 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 person tra trains to a single standard. Uh, whether they are reserve, active, or National Guard, they train to a single standard. And I'll go to Kathy. Uh, those that you're bringing into the, into the United States Army, are they the cut a cloth that we need for well, the fights ahead? Absolutely. Uh, the youth of today is high quality. Um, the typical recruit that we enlist from our battalion is 19 to 21 years old with some college under their belt. Uh, they're joining for a variety of reasons, but the, the quality and prepared to uh, meet the intents of our chief of staff is there. Yeah, and you think that uh, they know what they're getting into? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Constant uh, deployment, op-tempo, uh, going here and there and back again multiple times. They know that from the recruiters. As we go, to, as we prepare them to ship on active duty, we talk about what's going on. 
Um, certainly the fears are out there. We're talking to their parents, their influencers, um, but they will be well-trained. Um, they're quality people. They understand what needs to be done and they're prepared to go. I'm going to turn now to uh, Larry. By the way, Larry, congratulations on your, is this an additional duty? Uh, or do you still do your old job as well as the new one? No, I'm going to hire an Asian Studies Center director uh, probably in the next month or so. I, I get to sort of step up to more indirect supervision here. Ah, big time. Uh, Larry, you used to be an intel officer at one time, correct? Oh, yeah, about 25 years. Yeah, so you know something a little bit about indications of warning uh, and uh, gathering intelli information and turning into intelligence that's actionable, correct? I do. Yeah. In 1941, there were indicators, uh, indications the United States and Japan were headed for war, but we failed to prepare the American public for that possibility. Um, in 2001 and before that, calls for the need to vigorously defend against the threat of terrorism here on our soil all were but ignored. America was reminded again the hard way. What do you have to say about intelligence preparation indicators? Uh, just tie it together any way you want, Pearl Harbor and 9-11, or 9-11 by itself. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I think you're right that uh, from 1997 on, we had warnings from several different commissions that the Secretaries of Defense or the Congress had put together that we needed to prepare the United States for a war on terror, and we needed to be ready to defend the homeland. Now, now the Al-Qaeda network, this group, uh, probably had 10 years to prepare their clandestine networks, their, their little cells that are out secretly around the world and probably still in the United States. I, I think that the Congress is doing the right thing in working hard to reform the intelligence community and to find out where we can do better because there were problems. Yeah. Uh, you know, I understand in Pearl Harbor, the first shots were actually fired, not by the Japanese, but from four-inch guns aboard the destroyer Ward, patrolling outside the entrance to Pearl Harbor. And the Ward sank a Japanese midget submarine trying to enter the harbor. That was reported, but no action was taken. Was there a similar incident uh, of picking up someone, uh, of uh, some terrorist activity that a 9-11 incident was going to happen? Well, clearly the 1993 World Trade Center explosion, uh, the two embassies that were bombed in Africa, and the bombing of the USS Cole should have been pretty big indicators that we had a major problem out around the world. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I think that, of course, the, the Heritage Study really lays this out well, and I'd recommend to anyone, uh, if you need a copy, you would like to get a copy, I'm putting Larry on the spot, of the Heritage <laughs> Foundation Study on Homeland Security. Can I not get that from the Heritage Foundation? You can get it from us. You can go into www.heritage.org. You can download it from the website, or you can write to me, and I'll make sure you get a copy if you don't like using electrons. Okay. All right. So but either way, you can get it by electrons, or you can uh, write, and you'll send a hard copy. That's right. And, and for, the we older, appreciate for the older veterans. Right, like me and others that cannot well, we stand. We appreciate it all the help you gave us on it, General. Yeah, Green. I didn't do much, but uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great document, and I just want to put a plug in there for the Heritage Foundation because uh, their aim is to uh, make sure America survives and America wins. And uh, I mean that with all my heart. It's a great organization. I want to talk to General Harris, turn to General Harris here just for a moment. And there's a couple things. Uh, if you could just take a minute, Dave, and explain. Uh, there's something called the Operation Protect and Provide about uh, uh, law or act or something in the state of Illinois about low interest loans for military. Uh, is it reservists or National Guard? It applies uh, to both uh, reserves and the National Guard. It's a uh, not so. It's not a law, but rather is a program offered by the state treasurer's office. Uh, and low-interest loans are available to individuals who are called to duty. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, individuals who are called to active duty are protected or have the benefits of the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act so that they qualify for low-interest mortgages and uh, prevention of uh, foreclosure on, on homes. They can't be uh, evicted from their apartments and the like. Um, that is also available to them when they go on active duty. Okay, I want to I want to I'm going to go back to some of this in just a minute with General Harris. I want to break just to get Jay Greeley. No, I don't think he's on the line. I am. Oh, yeah, yes. Okay, Jay, you with us? Yes, sir. And you're in Virginia? Yes, sir, I am. Who? Okay, real quick, we got 1 minute. Uh what do you have a comment or a question for the group? Well, I had a, a couple of uh comments. I well, guess, make it uh, make it one right now. We only have 45 right seconds. Okay. Uh, make believe it's a frago, not a long detailed order. Frago. Go. Um, my, my question was, do we have enough uh, mid-level uh, soldiers that we need, you know, captains and majors right now, uh, in the uh, both the Guard and the Reserve and in the active, especially the active? Uh, I just uh, received a call from uh, PERSCOM asking me if I wanted to come back on active duty and do what I did in Bosnia for you, for yeah. Third Army. Yeah. I don't know. We're going to come back after the break. And we'll, we'll, we'll see if anybody knows about that. I have a feeling we may be a little short. I would know yeah. we were short when I left the Army. We'll come back to that in a minute. Stay, hang Good with there. us, Jay. Sure. Okay, go ahead, Kenny. Thank you. And here we are on our 13th show. In uh, show business, that's a quarter of what goes on in our scheduling. We've done 13 of them. We've got three more 13 quarters to do. We have to thank our greatest supporter, McDonald's, for their national salute to the U.S. military. Also, GIM Productions, who handles all of our website, our chat rooms, and our master Mark Eli behind it all. Dallas Corporation and the Veterans Studio Center. This is uh, Lance Hack, Lambert Matias, Carl King, Fred Cutchins, and Joe Zakowski helping us out big time. Paps Blue Ribbon Beer, the National Vietnam Veterans Art Museum, our Veterans Council here in the city of Chicago with Roy Dolgus and Rochelle Crump. And of course, let me thank uh, my lovely Lena on her birthday today to help me out to do all this and put up with the show. This is the Veterans Radio Hour, and we're at veteransradiohour.com. You can call our business line at any time, 800-591-0020, and give us some information that you'd like. Next week's program, we're going to pay tribute to the World War II veterans remembering the day after Pearl Harbor and the attack that took place when we then declared war. The Veterans Radio Hour, back in a moment.
You're listening to the Veterans Hour on the Talk, 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 Talk Radio Network. Way Anchor Mates, the Veterans Radio Hour now continues full speed ahead on the Talk Radio Network. Aye, aye, sir. The Veterans Hour proudly presents our military hero's story of valor. Our hero tonight is Lieutenant Commander Sam Fuqua from Missouri. He was assigned the USS Arizona Pearl Harbor, 7 December 1941. Upon commencement of the Japanese attack, Lieutenant Commander Fuqua rushed to the quarterdeck and was stunned and knocked down from an explosion. Upon gaining consciousness, he began to direct fighting the fires and to rescue wounded personnel. Another explosion rocked the ship forward, starting another huge fire. And under enemy strafing, Lieutenant Commander Fuqua directed the rescue of wounded sailors. After realizing the ship could not be saved, he directed the ship to be abandoned, but remained on the quarterdeck until every sailor that could be saved was evacuated. He left the destroyed ship last, with the final boatload. Lieutenant Commander Fuqua received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. The Veterans Radio Hour salutes the Active Service Person of the Week, made possible through the support of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. As they say, PBR me, ASAP. Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, available at your local retail outlet. Tonight we want to salute our active duty service member who's mobilized actually it's a senior master sergeant dave irvin citizen airman from the guardsman for thirty years currently serving in a forward operating base in kajistan he's a member of the three seventy six air expeditionary wing he's a communications squadron he's serving as its first sergeant he deployed out of mick entrick air, air national guard station of south carolina his father and his father-in-law were both first sergeants. His wife is also a member of the South Carolina Air National Guard. You're tuned to the Veterans Radio Hour with retired General Dave Grange, coming to you from the Veterans Center Studio. And now, back to the show. Okay, just a reminder, on our show tonight on Homeland Defense, we have three great guests. We have uh, Colonel Kathy Pennington, Commander U.S. Army Recruiting Battalion, Chicago. We have Dr. Uh, retired Colonel Larry Wurzel, who is a vice president at the Heritage Foundation. And we have Major General Dave Harris, the Adjutant General of the State of Illinois. And what I'd like to do now is go to one of our uh, uh, chat room uh, comments. And it's the first one. It's, uh, let's see, yeah, it's from Patrick Henry. Uh, do National Guardsmen have their NBC gear in the trunks of their cars so they could report for duty if the enemy launches a chemical biological attack? I'll ask General Harris that question. Well, they're certainly not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> their their, uh, their uh, M40 masks and the other are uh, countable equipment that is stored in a facility at their uh, uh, at their armory. Okay, so they're not supposed to carry them into their to, in their vehicles. Uh, obviously, they're going to assemble somewhere and then they just draw their equipment as needed. Right. The mop gear is uh, is not as tightly controlled as the mask is. Um, but the mask, as you know, is pre-fitted. It's, uh, it's uh, assigned to an individual, so uh, that's maintained at their headquarters. Uh, they may have some uh, mission-oriented protective gear uh, 
that they have available to them, but then normally they don't carry it with them. Okay. I uh, hope that answered the question. And uh, for General Harris, uh, there's a chat room uh, compliment from uh, Jay Jr. I think it's Jay uh, Grilly Jr. Uh, he's in the Virginia Guard right now as an 88 Mike. Yeah, he's in the state OCS program. When he finishes, he will have his master's all paid for by the uh, National Guard GI Bill. And he wants to thank uh, General Harris from Illinois for the National Guard program that all the state adjutant generals fought for through each state. So uh, that, uh, General Harris, that comes from uh, Jay Grilly, Jr. Well, tell Jay I'll, I'll always take any compliment. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, uh, here's a question um, for Larry Wurzel. It's also in the chat room. Uh, this, this is from also Patrick Henry. He's been reading the Jane's Biochemical Handbook. Since the terrorists are gunning to take out an American city, if they were to release a biochem agent, why are we relying on small teams uh, to run around and try to handle the uh, chemical attacks, for instance, to distribute absorbents? Why don't we smother the uh, chem bio with uh, C-130 aircraft sp uh, spraying equipment? Uh, Larry? Well, that's a good thought. In the end, we don't know where an attack might occur. We may have some warning. It's, it, it's, all, it, it's a great idea, uh, but we don't know exactly where an attack might occur. In the end, we have to stay with our first responders. Local response, local police, local fire, local hospitals, and the surrounding National Guard are probably going to be the first people that have to respond to any attack. Okay. Uh, in the Chicago Tribune Sunday, Sunday edition, there was an article by John Cook. The headline read, well, no, they won't go. And the article is about uh, Professor Charlie Moskos. He was a guest on our show uh, back a while when we talked about national service. And he teaches a class on uh, sociology. He does a lot of studies on military sociology. And, uh, of course, his position is on service to the nation is bring back the draft. And draft, especially the those that benefit the most from what America has to offer, uh, start at the top ranks of uh, privileged, not at the bottom. Anyway, the article calls Charlie Moscos, I quote, as a lone voice calls for mandatory service to the country. Students make it clear they have things they'd much rather do. Um, we talked to Kathy earlier about uh, recruiting is, is uh, numbers are up, not problems uh, uh, making the cut. Uh, where, wh what kind of pe what kind of people are coming in, Kathy? That uh, uh, that you're recruiting is it, um, uh, it? Would you call it you know what the, what what you read about a lot? America's elite, middle class. What kind of people are you getting? Well, as I said earlier, um, the average recruit that we've put in from Chicago's 19 to 21 years old, has some college, um, come from all walks of life, lots of money to no money, um, coming in for a variety of different reasons. Um, certainly we can debate all day long if we should have a draft, but an all-volunteer force has been proven the quality, the fact that they want to be there has been more beneficial in the long run for the armed forces, clearly for the Army. Um, whether a draft comes back or not is uh, certainly a decision above my pay grade, but 
as a recruiting battalion commander, our job is to recruit those non-prior service for an all-volunteer force. Uh, let me turn to Larry on the same idea here um, and go back to the heritage uh, study or one of the, the panels, uh, conferences that uh, we've been a part of. Uh, for the long haul, if we go to war for Iraq, maintain the pressure on the terrorist organizations that we're doing now, and it looks like we're going to be going to a few other places. You know, there's problems in Nigeria now. Sudan's still a mess. Uh, you got the Yemen, uh, Ethiopia, Somalia area. You got a lot of work in the Philippines still and pushing over into other places in the Far East like uh, Indonesia. Uh, the surge in Colombia, well, we've picked up the pace there. Uh, not only the drug issue, but on fighting uh, the terrorist aspects of the FARC, the, the paramilitary organizations down there, ELN and FARC. And then you have uh, where, just like the Nazis after World War II in South America, you have an emergent of, emergence of Al-Qaeda, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, IRA, others now in a tri-border area of Argentina, Uruguay, and Par Paraguay. With everything that's uh, going on now and what may happen on the horizon, Horizon, uh, Larry, are we going to need to have some kind of national service or, or uh, to, to cover the stuff? Uh, and I didn't even mention Homeland Defense yet. How that's going to break out? Uh, do we have? Are we going to have enough? Uh, do we have enough people and our normal volunteers, or do we have to do something to get enough enough bodies to handle all this requirement? Well, I don't think we have enough people right now that are normal volunteers. And I think we're going to need to increase the size of the active force and keep the reserves up. The the pace that the reserves and the guard are going at, I think, is going to give some people pause that may cause them to leave at the end of their enlistment. Practically speaking, although I like the idea of mandatory national service, I don't think that the, the public's ready for that yet. I think your bringing the debate up is a good thing. I think it's worth the debate. I think we need that debate. But we don't have 16 million people in uniform, men in uniform, as we did in World War II, and I don't think we need that many yet. So I, I think we've got some time for a debate on the idea. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, the concern is it's not just the military. When you get to Homeland Defense especially, you're looking at uh, auxiliaries uh, for um, – a lot of other uh, uh, requirements, police and firefighters and medical and, uh, and uh, natural disaster support like FEMA, things like that. So I think it's a lot of other things. We're going to be, uh, uh, General Harris is going to be leaving tonight uh, shortly. Uh, Dave, uh, real quick, we have to break here in a second. Uh, last comment on uh, uh, National Guard efforts. Well, we, we recruit an awful lot of folks into the National Guard, and, and every single one of them, those young men and women, uh, have stood up and done their duty whenever they were called on to do so. When you talk about mandatory national service, that idea has some merit as you tie into homeland defense, because there are missions which are not necessarily military missions that could be performed by young men and women who may not be in uniform. So uh, some sort of national uh, uh, service as opposed to drafting people into the uniform services uh, might be uh, something worth considering on missions that are not directly tied to the military. Yeah, that's a great point. And Dave, again, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Glad to do it. Always a pleasure. Okay, Thanks have a great conference. Okay. And now McDonald's Veteran of the Week.
Tonight's uh, McDonald's veteran is, is Oliver Lund. He's a longtime McDonald's owner-operator who served for over 20 years in the Navy. During his service, Ollie handled public publicity for the Navy and retired as one of two master chief journalists. He served at the Great Lakes Naval Station, the Pacific headquarters at the 14th Naval District at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and in Japan for the Commander Naval Forces. While serving during the Korean War, he woke up at 2 a.m. to write unclassified releases of the Navy's participation in the war for the AP, the UPI, and Reuters from 1952 to early 55. He also handled public, uh, publicity for the Nautilus, the first nuclear submarine, and helped lead the first tours of Pearl Harbor. When they began giving tours, it was only of the captain's quarters. They have evolved today to the current tour of Pearl Harbor and Arizona Memorial. When Ollie was stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Station, he and a group of fellow sailors approached McDonald's to become uh, franchises. McDonald's gave the group a franchise in Portland, Oregon, and they opened their first restaurant in 1960, the first McDonald's restaurant in the Pacific Northwest. Ollie currently owns two McDonald's restaurants. The great thing about the group that opened this restaurant was had group members who were able to work there while others in the group finished their service. Ollie says the Navy was a great career. He couldn't ask for anything better. Welcome class to Daily Economics. Today's frugal foray, the dollar menu from McDonald's. Mouth-watering myth? Well, for minuscule money, you can procure a big and tasty sandwich with hearty beef, crisp lettuce, and juicy tomato. In fact, the tender McChicken sandwich and lots of your other favorites are also a buck each every day. Thus, at McDonald's, less moolah equals more ooh-la-la. Questions? Like, will this be on the test? Not unless you're a messy eater. Got a buck? You're in luck. With McDonald's dollar menu every day. Price and participation may vary. You're listening to the Veterans Hour on the Talk, 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 Talk Radio Network. The Veterans Hour now returns to full readiness on the TRM Talk Radio Network. And the last part of our program, before we go back to our special guests and uh, those that ask questions or comments on the chat line or the telephone, I'd like to share with you an article from the Washington Post by Frank Schaefer. It's titled, My Heart on the Line. And many, many people have uh, sons and daughters that are just going into the military, already in the military. Some are stateside, some are already in harm's way. And I guess nowadays you can be in harm's way in the United States, obviously. And so I, th I think this, uh, a military family uh, or, or acquaintance in the military, it's a special story. And this is what Frank has to say. Before my son became a Marine, I never thought much about who was defending me. Now, when I read of the war on terrorism or the common conflict in Iraq, it cuts to my heart. When I see a picture of a member of our military who has been killed, I read his or her name very carefully. Sometimes I cry. In 1999, when the barrel-chested Marine recruiter showed up in dress blues and bedazzled my son John, I did not stand in a way. John was headstrong, and he seemed to understand these stern, clean men with straight backs and flawless uniforms. I did not. I live on the Vauville driving, higher education worshiping North Shore of Boston. I write novels for a living. I have never served in the military. 
It had been hard enough sending my two older children off to Georgetown and New York University. John's enlisting was unexpected, so deeply un unsettling. I did not relish the prospect of answering the question, so where is John going to college? From the parents who were itching to tell me all about how their son or daughter was going to Harvard. At the private high school John attended, no other students were going into the military. But aren't the Marines terribly Southern, asked one perplexed mother while standing next to me in a, in a brunch following graduation. What a waste. He was such a good student, said another parent. One parent, a professor at a nearby and rather famous university, spoke up at a school meeting and suggested that the school should carefully evaluate what went wrong. When John graduated from three months of boot camp at Paris Island, 3,000 parents and friends were on a parade deck stands. We parents and our Marines not only were of many races, but also were representative of many economic classes. Many were poor. Some arrived crammed in the backs of pickups, others by bus. John told me that a lot of parents could not afford the trip. We in the audience were white and Native American. We were Hispanic, Arab, and African American and Asian. We were former Marines wearing the scars of battle, or at least baseball caps emblazoned with battle's names. We were southern whites from Nashville and skinheads from New Jersey, black kids from Cleveland wearing ghetto rags and white ex-cons with ham hock forearms defaced by jailhouse tattoos. We would not have been mistaken for the educated and well-heeled parents gathered on the lawns of John's private school a half year before. After graduation, one new Marine told John, before I was Marine, if I had ever seen you on my block, I, wouldn't, I would have probably killed you just because you were standing there. This was a serious statement for one of John's good friends, an African-American ex-gang member from Detroit, who, as John said, would die for me now, just like I'd die for him. My son was connect has connected me to my country in a way that I was too selfish and insular to experience before. I feel closer to the waitress at our local diner than to some of my oldest friends. She has two sons in the Corps. They are facing the same dangers as my boy. When the guy who fixes my car asks me how John is doing, I know he means it. His younger brother is in the Navy. Why were I and other parents at my son's private school so surprised by his choice? During World War II, the sons and daughters of the most powerful and educated families did their bit. If the immor immorality of the Vietnam War was the only reason those lucky enough to go to college dodged the draft, why do we not encourage our children to volunteer for military service once that war was done? Have we wealthy and educated Americans all become pacifists? Is the world a safe place, or have we just gotten used to having somebody else defend us? What is the future of our democracy when the sons and daughters of, our, of the janitors at our elite universities are far more likely to be put in harm's way than are any of the students whose dorms their parents clean? I feel shame because it took my sons joining the Marine Corps to make me take notice of who was defending me. I feel hope because perhaps my son is part of a future greatest generation. As the storm clouds of war gather, at least I know that I can look the men and women in uniform in the eye. My son is one of them. He is the best I have to offer. He is my heart. You're listening to the Veterans Hour with retired Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, back to the broadcast. Okay, and I apologize for reading that long letter, but I think it really cuts to the chase of a lot of things we talked about on uh, the different types of people who serve, why they serve, and the importance of service to the nation. 
Right now we have two great guests back, uh, Kathy Pennington, Commander of Recruiting Battalion Chicago, and Dr. Larry Wurzel, Vice President in the Heritage Foundation. I'll go to Kathy first, and Kathy, if you would, give us a quick wrap-up of uh, your feelings on, on recruiting and sustaining the force for the future. Well, sir, you know, as you mentioned in the, the break, the greatest resource our Army has is people. And that's what we're required to do is recruit those type of people. Like in any other conflict in the past, the youth of the time rose to the occasion and served proudly. There is no doubt in my mind the conflicts of the future, the youth of today will rise to the occasion and serve with pride. Okay, very nice, and I appreciate it. And I'm going to go, uh, Larry, uh, with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, Real quick, we only have a minute left. Now, we're going to stay about 15 more minutes at the end of the show with the chat room because there's a lot of great questions tonight coming across the net. But first of all, Larry, uh, give us a quick 45-second uh, summary of the Department of Homeland Security as you see it being successful or not. I think it will be successful. 22 separate organizations going to be merged into one really focused on protecting the homeland. And the first time since World War II that we really had a serious threat in the homeland, the next challenge is in the Congress. Eighty-eight separate congressional committees all want a little bit of turf and control a little bit of money. So, so your, your listeners need to get with their congressmen and their senators and ensure that the, the new department is supervised by standing committees for homeland security. Okay, Larry, can you stay with us for another 15 minutes? Sure, I can stay with you. Okay, good. Please stay with us. There's a lot of great questions coming over on, a, on the chat room, and we want to answer those for you tonight. Thank you again with uh, Veterans uh, Radio Hour. Jay, are you with us? Yes, sir. Okay, Jay Greeley, and now those that are going to be able to continue to listen will do that on audio stream in the chat room. Uh, you had a, we cut you off short before. I apologize, but your son had priority. I, I probably should have asked this one first. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pennington, uh, are you familiar with your CST teams? Were you ever observing them, or, or have you ever uh, worked with them? She's, she's not involved with the, the, uh, oh. the, the Chembio response teams of the National Guard. She's a recruiting uh, well, battalion commander. I'd like to make a comment to her that uh, I was able to reserve, uh, observe the uh, Illinois uh, National Guard CST team on their first visit to the Washington, I mean the uh, West Virginia Memorial Tunnel training facility, and uh, they did an outstanding job in some pretty uh, tough scenarios. And uh, you know those guys are ready. Was this the Illinois team? Yes. Yeah, I wish uh, Dave Harris is not with us right now. He'd like to hear that. We'll pass that on though for you, Jay. I got a, yeah. I got a question for Jay, Gerald. Sure. Okay. I, the, the CST teams, uh, I think, are going to be lifesavers and a great concept. But, but now there's 22. Maybe it'll go up to 36. Hopefully, 50. Right. D do you think, Jay, that that they should be spending some of their time now training first responders in the states and working with National Guard units so that almost any unit at some level is going to be able to respond? I. I really think that that is not very far away. I think we're really training the trainers right now. I can tell you that we have um, the real, the, the question is, is first responder and what I call crisis responders, 
uh, with the first responder, you're really talking about the uh, hazmat uh, teams and that, and the crisis responder would be these teams. Now, a lot of times, given a specific target or intel, they may be pre-deployed and at the ready, and something happens, they can move in very quickly. But either the response time uh, is, is usually, I would say, within the first 10 to 15 hours of a, of a crisis. And then you're talking, and once you finish the crisis phase, you're into consequence management. The National Guard right now has several programs that are going to address the uh, automation assessment, evaluation and assessment uh, system, AEAS, which is a software program that will be given to every state and local agency uh, where they can use it as tutorial, as a trainer, and as an assessment. Uh, and we're in the beta phase of that right now. So I think that has just been briefed to all the National Guard generals at their conference and it's been demonstrated and we're in the beta test our next beta test will be up in iowa this is coming not this week but the next week okay uh let me stop you there for a minute now remember just act like we're on the radio as if we're going to be jammed or monitored <laughs> yeah okay. short pieces okay uh this is a question from for larry it's from Fa uh from Fosse from utah is the government considering the separation of space command from the u.s air force and will the Space Command be a part of Homeland Security? Well, Space Command is still uh, co-located and part of uh, the, the Northern Command headquarters. Uh, ballistic missile defense is part of Homeland Security, and I think they'll be an integral part. Okay, thanks, Larry. This is another question from Carol in Georgia. I'll ask Kathy here this question, and if... if uh, and we can share the question as well, but I'll start, Kathy, uh, with her first. It's from Carol. She says, how can I, as an American citizen, help my country during a war on terrorism? I cannot join because of my age, but surely there is something I can do to help. Well, there's always some, someone can do to help. Everybody's got friends. Um, certainly anybody that she knows that are within the, the age group to enlist in the Army should talk to one of the local recruiters. She herself can call a local recruiter and talk about the Army programs, and I'm sure she has friends that may be interested in, in serving. Okay, and, and uh, I think that uh, Carol can influence some other people. I influence people all the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I am a recruiting weapon. And uh, and proud to do so. I'm sure Carol can do the same. But I, that's one reason I'm really hot on this, uh, some kind of national service, which doesn't have to be military, because people can help uh, do all kinds of stuff. A lot you of the, join the Red Cross. Yeah, the Red Cross, uh, local, state, and 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 federal levels uh, would help. Well, there were two uh, chats that came on, both of them in regards to civil defense, the old style, I guess, that came about after um, Pearl, what, Pearl Harbor. What was that question, Kenny? Well, they exactly wanted to know, do you think we should come up with a new civil defense uh, policy using uh, American citizens, especially for the borders uh, that are 3,000 miles unprotected? Yeah, well, that's just land borders. Uh, the, the coastline is about 9,500, I think. So let me go to Larry, and I'll go to, to Jay on that. Larry, what do you yeah. think? Well, I think you will see a new civil defense system. When, when he was the director of the Office of Homeland Security, Governor Ridge talked about one and proposed one as a, uh, assuming, I'm sure he'll be confirmed, as the secretary uh, of the new department, you will see that. And, and people will be able, in their communities, 
mobilize and to be able to do positive things to defend the nation. Okay, I'll, I'll, let me hit Jay with this next part. I'm going to just take another piece of this. It's a different person uh, on this question. It's from Patrick Henry. Uh, civil defense question. Jay, this is for you. Stay alert. Okay. If terrorists knew that Americans had a two-week supply of food in a sealed room like Israelis do, this would deter the enemy from even trying Kembio attack on them. It could even be a bluff. Not every American so prepared. But if we talked about it and many people did it, it would check the enemy before they even tried, forcing them to do other options. Your comment on, I guess it's almost, this reminds me of the nuclear uh, response attitude I, after sure. World War II. It, it, it reminds you of that, but I can tell you right now that most counties are sending out this information. Is that right? That's, that's right. Give uh, an example. Both Fairfax, Loudoun County, and our have done it. It's called the uh, hurricane. You know, they, they, they talk about it for, not, they take it as an all-hazards approach. Okay, so there, it's for natural disasters as well as uh, terrorist Absolutely. attacks? Absolutely. All right. Um, okay. And there's a thing called Citizens Corps, and I, I think we should bring that up. That's go ahead, a, do it. Yeah, the Citizens Corps is available right now. You can go online, you know, type in Citizens Corps in Google, and uh, you can join that, and, and they're actually starting that right now. We have every city and county uh, agency is getting funds to do that. Uh, there's something like... Uh, uh, a couple of million dollars going to D.C. and uh, Fairfax, Arlington. is Arlington's the model that's setting it up, and now we're working with them uh, with the Red Cross is doing a lot of the training of the Citizens Corps. Okay. Here's a question someone asked uh, on uh, from Georgia. What is a uh, CST? Explain, uh, Jay, CST and also CBRIF. Um, well, the... I'm running out of batteries here real quick, but I'll... Well, just right cover now, C CST. CST is a civilian, uh, civilian support teams, and they're basically a, a, a chemical detection, and they can go in and define and look, and uh, their, their ability to actually do any type of rescue, they're more of a what is it, what killed them, and what's the cause, and how big is it, and identify the, uh, the downwind message, and, and that they're, uh, they're more of a detection and uh, defining what it is that we're up against, either biochemical or, or uh, nuclear. Okay. Uh, Jay may be uh, non-operational here in a minute. Uh, Larry, I'm going to go to you. Uh, here's another question. During the war on terrorism, why don't we close our borders? Well, I, I think that that would shut down trade. This, this nation and all nations survive on the free exchange of goods in the marketplace. It creates wealth. It drives our economy. The people that come in and out help do that. So I think we need smarter controls on our borders. We need to know who's coming in and out. We need to be able to keep track of them. But I don't think we should close them. Okay. Here's another question. Uh, this is for uh, uh, Kathy. I received a call from PERSCOM. They said that they were looking for retired majors and captains that want to come back and serve. Is this true? Um, that's that's about it. Are you getting any people coming back in or prior service that want to join back up? My understanding, there are some programs with s certain specialties that PERSCOM is asking folks to come back on active duty. But from a recruiting standpoint, no, we get prior service in just off the streets that want to come back in just because they want to serve. 
Mm-hmm. And but you are, willing you to are take, getting them. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. And they're willing to take any grade, any position, any specialty just uh-huh. to come on active duty. But are this you, program, this viewer is talking about, uh, I believe, is something unique from PERSCOM oh, for unique specialties. So that, yeah, but, uh, just, but from what you said, you, are you getting a lot of people in that category that were prior service that just say, hey, I want to get back in, I don't care what I do? No more so than we have, you know, a year ago. But uh-huh. we have, we do have a quota to meet prior service. Yeah. And we we are achieving that. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. folks that want to serve, they realize either things aren't as green as they thought on the other side of the fence, or with the national emergencies in the situation, they want to come back and serve. Yeah. Hey Jay, are you kaput? Or are you still there? I'm I'm still there. I was just going to. Are you one I of those guys? I had uh, one of those opportunities to enlist a. Uh, a soldier got a call from the recruiter. He needed an officer to do a swear-in, and I'm a retired officer, but you can still swear him in. It's one of the proudest moments I had to swear in a, a veteran into the Charlie Company, uh, first the 16th uh, Virginia Army National Guard. Okay, so, uh, you know, I think that's great. And, uh, yes, I, I did get a call from PERSCOM. They're looking for aviators, and uh, – but I, I'm going to find out more tomorrow. I'm going to talk to the sessions folks. Okay, thanks, Jay. We've got an yeah. email that's come in from Scott, uh, and I believe he's in somewhere in Texas, and he talks about the heritage of our personal freedom and our liberty to pursue life without the fear of government harassment. He believes and wants to know, and this might be for Dr. Larry, um, why do we seem to be complying with the terrorist demands by limiting our travel, by policing our people through more socialistic tactics and attempting to pass laws that get us closer to the terrorist objectives. Uh, there are quite a few people in the United States who do believe that part of this is happening. Could you uh, balance this out a little bit for us, Dr. Wurzel? I'd be happy to. It is, that is absolutely correct, and it should be a matter of continuous concern. We, we need to make sure that government uh, doesn't get too big, that it doesn't get too intrusive. But but the fact is we don't know how many clandestine groups have been inserted and are operating in the United States, and they had 10 years to do it. So for a limited period of time, I I think that the the Patriots Act that passed last year is going to allow the government to do what it needs to do to try and run these people to ground. Larry, I'm interested why you said they had 10 years to do it. What do you mean? Well, the the Al-Qaeda network started right after the Gulf War in 2001. From 2000, uh, I'm sorry, in 91. From 91 to 2001, in that 10-year period, we tended to treat terrorist acts as individual criminal acts. So they were gone after by law enforcement from time to time, but the intelligence community never focused on the whole network. Okay. You're more sophisticated with your answer than I had suspected. I thought you were talking about previous leadership. My mistake. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to. We're a nonpartisan think tank. Well, of course. Thank you, Larry. And we're a nonpartisan uh, show. We do have our opinions. Um, anyway, uh, Larry, uh, I'm going to let you wrap up here for us on Homeland Defense. Uh, just give us about a minute uh, in, in parting of just some critical issues ahead for Americans that we need to be cognizant of. Uh, the big things to think about are we're not going to be able to fight a war on terror 
deter out there on the Korean Peninsula, deter the Chinese against Taiwan, and possibly fight in Iraq without a major call-up of the Garden Reserves. If that happens, that's less people left to respond if we get hit in some locality with a major terrorist attack. Okay, so saying, we, go ahead. We, we probably need to think about increasing the active force. We, we need to understand that there's going to be uh, some work out of this intelligence fusion center in the new department to identify any cells that are here, and civil defense is going to be a significant requirement. Saying that, what part of our military should be, with the military involvement in homeland defense, what part of our military should have that responsibility? Well, I, I think what's going to happen, practically speaking, is that the National Guard units who can respond to the governors who are physically located near the place where an event might happen are probably going to be called on to respond if it's a major terrorist attack, chemical, biological, nuclear, or radiological. Okay. I'm going to go around the table real quick, uh, and I'm going to ask a simple question. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Kathy J and Larry, and then I'll make my own meager comment at the end. Uh, are we or are we not at war right now, Kathy? We are at war. And as uh, recruiting battalion commander, my job is to recruit those people to fight our nation's war. Who? Jay Grilly. Uh, we are at war. I think it's uh, pretty clear uh, that. We're, we, have a, we have an enemy who has stated that he was going to put uh, 100,000 Spetsnats and that he was going to do stuff. I mean, so far he has made every single claim he has, has come through, and he's going to do nitpicks. He's going to do uh, snipe, sniper shooting here. He's going to do a, an explosion there. He's going to do harassment. And uh, my question is, is uh, how high does the body count have to be before we we wake up that's all okay uh, Larry well I think we're at war I think they've had as I said from 1991 to 2001 yeah. to get inside the wire uh, it's like the the Germans at Bastogne dressed in American uniforms uh, I'm not talking about black helicopters everywhere uh, but but there, certainly there are terrorists who have managed to insert themselves among us and that's why for for a time being, this ability to use intelligence and law enforcement information together is going to help root them out. Okay, and uh, I'll wrap up with that. And I say, yes, we definitely are at war, and uh, our business is to win, and we better get with it if we're going to continue to win on all fronts. And uh, Kenny, to you, we're going to close out, correct? I thank you very much. Uh, our guests were great tonight on Homeland Defense. Keep listening in on uh, VeteransRadioHour.com. We had quite a few chat rooms happening over the last week. I think we're up to 57 countries that are now linking on to our website, listening in on the radio show, and sending us as much as they can. General Dave? Yeah, I just want to thank Kathy again, uh, Pennington, uh, Chicago Recruiting Battalion, and Dr. Wurzel, Vice President at... Uh, Heritage Foundation, again, congratulations on your promotion. Your, now your dual task until you hire some other people. And again, our, in our uh, 
drafted guest, Jay Grilly. Thanks for hanging in there with us, Jay, and <laughs> good night to all for participating with us on this very important subject. Hua. Hua. Hey, thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you, sir. And thanks, McDonald's, once again. Well, we are signing off now, but we do uh, ask you to uh, continue uh, staying in touch with us and with each other uh, via the chat room. And be sure to tune in again next week to the Veterans Radio Hour, which uh, comes on the air, a broadcast version at 9 o'clock. But we are on, I should say, 9 o'clock Central Standard Time. But uh, be apprised of the fact that we're on at approximately 8.30 or 8.35. We begin streaming on the Internet, uh, giving you a little bit of live background of what's going on here in the studio, filling you in on some of the things uh, that we'll be planning for that show. Uh, next week's uh, program is going to be devoted to Pearl Harbor, uh, and, uh, which, as we all know, was the inauguration of World War II. Be sure to uh, listen in. It's going to be a great show, I promise. Thank you, and a pleasant good evening to everyone. Bye now.